Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Just a heads up, there is a bit of strong language in this episode. Iris, how are you doing? Whew. You know, um, I want to say that I don't know even what to answer to this question because things are very bad um, at the moment. Iris Zaki is an Israeli filmmaker. I called her up to talk about a documentary she just released with survivors of last month's Hamas attacks. But very quickly, our conversation became about Iris's own feelings. You're in Tel Aviv now? I'm in Tel Aviv. We have uh, rocket sirens almost every day. There are drones uh, above our heads and, you know, helicopters. Uh, so everything is both crazy and kind of like a routine of this uh, craziness. Uh, but I'm very worried and, and very sad. For a decade now, Iris has made these beautiful little films about Israeli life. In one, she worked at an Arab hair salon in her mixed hometown, and she talked politics with her clients. In another, she sought out very conservative Israelis, people she totally disagreed with, and tried to convince them to have coffee with her. Her latest film is more straightforward, more gutting. She goes to a Tel Aviv hotel that's full of survivors of the October 7th attacks, most from a single kibbutz just beyond the Gaza fence. She speaks to them about how and if they're beginning to pick up the pieces. Iris herself is aware that for now, she's relatively safe. But she teaches at a university where students and a colleague got killed. Talking to her, it's easy to see the way October's violence has haunted every Israeli, no matter where they were that day. I was really worried to even walk on the streets of Tel Aviv because it felt like there are, you know, terrorists all over the country, and we don't know if they're hiding or if they're here. You grew up in Israel, right? So what, what were you taught about your Palestinian neighbors? Um, not enough, generally speaking. I don't think that there is enough uh, depth in the way that we are um, familiar with what's going on. I mean, in one of your films, I, I know, I'm not sure if it was you or your subject— who said, oh, we were just taught growing up that Palestinians want to kill you. Mm -hmm. That was me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, my father is from Egypt. His father was a Muslim. So my father and his mother used to speak Arabic. But 
hearing Arabic scares me physically sometimes. So it's like it's we're really, I hope I can say fucked up in that sense that it's something that is kind of like growing up here, that's kind of like the result. Huh. Like it's unavoidable, even with your background. Yeah, the conflict is very prominent in our lives. To me, I look at your films and it seems like one of the projects you're taking on is rejecting that childhood narrative that Palestinians just want to kill you, trying to reject that fear. Mm -hmm. Are you having to fight to do that now? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm very um I'm very sad I have to say I'm very disappointed by a lot of things the more um like the child in me is very disappointed by this world right now in many many aspects it's it's not good for the soul Today on the show an uncommonly intimate portrait of life in Israel one month after the attack that changed everything. The anger, the fear, and what it means to make space for hope. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. I want to talk about your latest documentary. The New York Times published it with the headline, I Don't Have Empathy, It's Not In Me Anymore. You recorded it in a hotel. Can you explain this hotel? Who was staying there? So basically, uh, the kibbutz that is the closest one to the fence, to the Gaza fence border uh, is Kfar Gaza in Kfar Aza in Hebrew and it's a small kibbutz of like I think 600 people and they were I think the first ones to get attacked by terrorists a lot of uh, families there uh, died I personally know a few people because I also teach at Sapir College which is exactly there in the Gaza envelope 
So we lost a lot of people. The Gaza envelope is the, the region around Gaza. That's very, it's in inside Israel. Yes, yes. So you knew people personally who lived in this kibbutz? Yeah, yeah. Someone who worked with me at my department, like TV and uh, cinema at Sapir College, uh, who was in charge of the productions, and he uh, was on a sabbatical to shoot his film, and he died. He protected his wife and uh, one-month-old uh, baby, and he was killed. I'm so sorry. Thank you. So I was looking for a place where there is one kibbutz uh, staying at the same hotel because in Tel Aviv now there are a lot of boutique hotels and like, you know, even apartments that people allow others to stay in from this Gaza envelope. Because of course they can't stay in their community where they were. It's too dangerous. No, the kibbutz is, is smashed, like it's burned. It's, there's no kibbutz anymore. It will take two years to rebuild uh, Far Gaza. So they are together. You have like families that started with two rooms because they had like the, the two parents and two kids or three kids, but then more and more people arrived. So the five or six of them is one like standard hotel room. And it's going to be like that for the next six months. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So that's kind of like um, the current situation. Everyone is post-traumatic. The way your documentary is shot is striking to me because you do these wide shots where you someone's looking right at camera in the center of the frame and you can see all around them how they're living. Like a lot mm -hmm. of times there's a kid in the background with a iPad or a device, you know, you can see their messy bed, you know, you can tell that they're in this transitional state. And then they're saying such affecting things like it's clear that people who attacked them may have been familiar with their community. It's, it's a good question. First of all, uh, thank you for pointing that out. I insisted on filming in the rooms because I thought that in documentary, I always think that the frame should also tell the story. And, you know, uh, taking them to a neutral space would be, would miss something. And I told them, don't, don't, they try to tidy up the room. I was like, no, 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 you know, People should see that that's the situation. And I really like that. Uh, but I have to also tell you like uh, that I, I went through some Instagram comments and people were like, oh, really poor things. They had to go to hotels. Oh, I feel sorry for them in a very cynical way. Like sarcastic. Yes, because of, you know, the, the situation in Gaza. Uh, but, you know, when you lost your father or your, your brother or your wife and three kids are kidnapped, it doesn't matter if you're in a hotel. No one wants to be in a hotel. They want to be in their home that, is, that no longer exists. What was one of the more affecting stories you heard? I think that I was really uh, touched by Eleanor, one of uh, the subjects with her teenage daughter, because they were like, peace activists they really cared about what's going on in gaza they consider themselves neighbors yeah you said a number of the members of this community they would make a point to drive gazans to israeli hospitals when they needed to go right yeah and i i insisted on this sentence to include it in the film because i think that it really shows something very strong you know in israel this is like the most the most radical 
left, people that actually are activists and drive, you know, Gazans to hospitals. You know, I'm, I'm, I like to think of myself as an activist, but I don't go and drive people to hospitals, right? I'm an activist with my films. I'm an activist on Facebook. And now I did take part in the demonstration that uh, was happening. But she drove Gazans to hospitals and she really believes in, believed, I don't know, in coexistence and in, in, in she was trying to fight for the Palestinians' rights for normal lives. And then when you see, you see that, it's a bit heartbreaking. Yeah, you say believed. You corrected yourself there. I corrected myself, yeah. You don't think that she still believes? I think that now it's not a good time to to um, use words and, and, and to... Um, everything is very extreme now. Like she saw bodies with no faces and like horrible, horrible things that made her daughter want, want to leave the room. Bodies with no faces. Yes, that's what she said. Am I correct in remembering that the people felt like the people who had attacked them on October 7th knew their community, had been in their community, like knew where to go? Yeah, yeah. People are talking about it a lot in Israel now. So they knew exactly where uh, the guns are and they knew exactly where the the teens, teenagers, they have their own, like in kibbutz, sometimes the, the children and the teenagers, they have their own. They have like bunks, right? Yeah, and they don't live with the parents, but uh, they went straight to where young people live. They knew exactly where things are. And a lot of people told me that they knew that because they were building the houses there, uh, refurbishing houses there. And that's, that's going back to what you asked, that's the disappointment that a lot of the people there felt, that people that went there actually learned how things are and went back there. But I have to tell you that we don't know enough. Maybe Hamas interrogated these people and made them, you know, give this information. But but the, the, the real crisis here is that people are, have been left alone. And I'm not only talking about people waiting for over 20 hours in their uh, security room. They have security rooms in this area of the country because of all the bombs. Uh, but, you know, uh, parliament members, Bibi Netanyahu, no one went to see the kibbutz people. It's clear that the people you spoke to are so raw still, of course, and are angry at the Israeli government, are angry at people inside Gaza, Hamas. How do they feel about their government's response now, the bombing in Gaza? Like, do they feel it's justified or they don't know how to feel about it given their situation? I'm sure it, it also differs from person to person. I can talk for myself. It is scary. And the hostages could, should come back home. And there is now a demonstration about, you know, stopping this war right away. But I think that people here feel that there should be something done in order to make sure it doesn't happen again. But no one necessarily knows what that is. Yeah, but I'm saying like uh, um, in, in these uh, war terms, 
um, not just by sitting down and talking. Like Hamas has to go. That's that's how I feel the same. I don't think Hamas is taking care of its people. I don't think they treat them with humanity. And I don't think that people that slaughtered parents in front of the kids or kids in front of their parents and took six-month-old babies as hostages and 85-year-old, the elderly, as hostages or killed them are the ones that will help the Palestinians to achieve the life they deserve. I don't, I don't believe in war, (laughs) but it wasn't towards soldiers that it happened. It was, you know, innocent people, but I don't want any innocent people to sacrifice their lives. And I don't see it, it's the other side. I see it as people and my brothers. We'll be right back. I've heard what happened on October 7th referred to as Israel's 9-11. And I really understood that talking to Iris. For me, 9-11 kicked off a period of bewilderment. All these questions about what do I do now? When will things feel normal? A solid year later, one of the first things I asked anyone knew was, where were you the day the towers fell? It's like that for Iris now. Like, she hasn't gone back to work yet. The college where she taught is so close to Gaza that no one's ready. Even when she returns to teaching, it won't be in person. For her students, October 7th, it was their worst nightmare made real. This area is so used to being bombed and going to the shelter. It happens a lot. Like where I teach, there are a lot of signs, you know, and we are prepared of that. When I show films with sound that sounds like siren, I have to, like, trigger, alert alert them before. So I used to, like, write to them, hey, you're in my thoughts, whenever there's, you know, some tension in the area. But now we're talking about a different story. People that went through, you know, they lost their teacher, the one that I told you about, they lost friends. Uh, One was in a coma, one of my students. So now he's back. Um, I'm very happy about it. But I have to tell you that I... I feel that I'm grieving. And again, not only for the people that died in my country, not also for people in Palestine. And also I think that someone died in me, in us, on October 7th. Very um, fundamental feeling of security, of protection. It's painful and it's scary. And, and, And next week I'm going to a to London, to the UK, Jewish Film Festival, and, and I'm scared. You're scared to be in public as an Israeli? As an Israeli in a Jewish Film Festival. Um, yeah, yeah. I've heard a lot of things when I was living in London for eight years where I did my, my master's and my PhD that were very, very upsetting. It starts with my country and then I kind of like agree, yeah, it's a horrible place. I hate it. And then it goes to the people in my country. And then I'm like a bit, okay, wait a minute. I'm also from there. There are different people. And then sometimes with the right amount of alcohol, it goes to, oh yeah, and actually Jewish people 
are like this and like that. And that's where I feel very scared and, and very sad. And that's a feeling that a lot of my friends feel now. I know you've had a breadth of work before this latest documentary, and I want to talk about it a little bit now. Because right now in Israel, there's both bombing going on in Gaza, but also rising violence in the West Bank. That's where you made your film Unsettling. You went to a Jewish settlement, Tekoa. It's the kind of place that's home to some of the most conservative Israelis, people who are living illegally on occupied land, causing a lot of tension with their Palestinian neighbors. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you're still in touch with any of the people that you spoke to there at this moment. Um, I am in touch generally. Um, not right now. But we are, I stayed hmm. friend, friends with like the main settler, <laughs> the main character, uh, Matanya. The first one to talk to you. Yeah, exactly. And he was like, he's amazing. Like he, he was raised there. He was born there. And he thinks that Israel has to find a solution. Yeah. I was struck by one woman in your documentary, Unsettling, who'd actually been attacked by a Palestinian and stabbed. She was pregnant at the time. Yes. And she both didn't want to leave the settlement. She felt like it was her place. But she also felt what I'd call empathy for her attacker. Yeah. She said that local Muslim leaders had come to her home and prayed with her as she was recovering from her injuries. Mm -hmm. In the wake of October 7th, have you found any stories like that? People who are feeling similarly to that woman or no i have to say that, that she didn't feel empathy towards her attacker but towards generally like where he comes from and, and why he became an attacker mm. i saw some posts at the beginning of this ugly war about from people from her kind of like camp which is uh, the fruman family that she belongs to and some other women that are really uh you know, trying to promote coexistence in the West Bank. I personally would prefer that they didn't live in the West Bank and try to coexist there, but go back to, you know, the legal parts of Israel. So I, I, I admire her, but I think that the settlers have been quite a pain in the ass uh, for this uh, government. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, look, a lot of my friends are like left-wingers, a lot of things are on my feed right now, you know, supporting Gaza, supporting Palestinians, not Gaza. Gaza is, a, is an empty word for me. Again, we need to separate things, but caring for that. But, but there is pain and there is rage and there is fear right now. I have one last question. Mm -hmm. Do you know what your next project is going to be? You just did this documentary with people who had just survived a horrible, horrible massacre. What do you want to do next? I'm actually uh, very interested. And just yesterday, I came back from Haifa. Uh, there is a project that I want to film with both Israelis or Jews and Palestinians or Arabs, uh, young people, and hear from them about the current situation and their views, not only on the war, but broader views. 
Hmm. I'm wondering if you think that project will give you some hope. Yes. I have to say yes, uh, because I believe in people. I believe in individuals. I think that people can actually be in a fruitful dialogue. And again, as much as, as long as there is this very basic respect and curiosity. Um, and I do hope that younger people in Israel will be, be better than, you know, the uh, older generations and will try to make this place a better place for them and for their children. And I do believe that there is like some really good elements here in this society and in this country. Iris, I'm really grateful for you setting aside so much time and talking through all your complicated feelings and your work. Thanks. Thank you. It was good for me as well. <laughs> Just like the people told me when I was uh, filming them. Iris Zaki is an Israeli filmmaker. She lives in Tel Aviv. And that's the show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support us is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus and sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here next time. <laughs>